0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Notorious Skyjacker, D.B. Cooper. Now let's continue with part two of our story about D.B. Cooper. Richard McCoy had successfully done what the FBI maintained was impossible when discussing D.B. Cooper, namely successfully jumping from a passenger aircraft and evading capture after landing. Unfortunately, McCoy had already set off a chain of events that precipitated his arrest on Sunday, April 9th, only 48 hours after the hijacking. Clearly, anyone who would successfully be able to implement such a deed would have been both meticulously prepared and probably obsessive about the undertaking. Richard McCoy was quite vocal to some of his National Guard colleagues about how easy it would be to successfully parachute from a plane after extorting a large sum of money. One of these Guard associates, Robert Van Eperen, immediately called McCoy's home after hearing about the hijacking. McCoy's sister in law, who was not in on the crime, told Van Eperin that both Richard and his wife were not home and that Richard was off with the National Guard. Van Eperin, a dispatcher on duty for the Utah Highway Patrol and able to follow law enforcement activity related to the crime, knew that this was a lie and was immediately suspicious. McCoy was a close friend and fellow Vietnam veteran, and he believed that Van Eperin would not betray him. He was wrong. First, Van Eperen notified his boss at the Highway Patrol, who told him he was nuts and to go back to work, and then he personally contacted the FBI in Salt Lake City. Agents were already at McCoy's front door by early Saturday morning. Coincidentally, McCoy was with his National Guard detail, having left his home at 5 a.m. He was detained and questioned by FBI agents, who demanded an alibi for his whereabouts on Friday. McCoy was smart enough to admit nothing, but it was only a matter of time before law enforcement matched handwriting samples from his guard duty and his fingerprints to those left on the plane. He was arrested in the early morning hours on Sunday. Because McCoy knew he was under surveillance, he was unable to successfully hide the hijacked cash in a previously excavated hole in his backyard secured with plastic tubing too small to contain the currency. His clumsy attempts to conceal it in his home failed, and the FBI was able to locate $499,970, the missing $30 spent by McCoy in the interim. Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. was charged with air piracy, convicted at trial, and sentenced to 45 years in a federal penitentiary at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. McCoy's hijack would have been merely an interesting addendum to the D.B. Cooper case. However, there were certain similarities to the Cooper hijacking and Richard McCoy that had interested parties immediately asking if both hijackings had been carried out by the same individual. The hijacker known as D.B. Cooper left behind a clip-on tie and tie clasp with a distinctive mother-of-pearl adornment. This information would never be disclosed to the public and would be used by the FBI to frustrate the numerous frauds who came forward claiming to be the infamous hijacker. Both McCoy's mother-in-law and sister-in-law would separately and emphatically identify the tie and clasp as McCoy's, worn frequently, especially during any formal event. There were similarities to the procedures used during both hijackings. McCoy was a Vietnam veteran, a skilled skydiver, and most importantly, a dead ringer for the drawing of Cooper that had circulated after the crime. Eyewitnesses to the Cooper hijacking weren't unable to categorically identify McCoy as Cooper, but even passengers on the McCoy hijack plane had widely varying descriptions of the height, weight, and age of Richard McCoy. Such eyewitness descriptions are notoriously inaccurate. The FBI would subsequently officially claim that McCoy was not Cooper and that they had verified McCoy's whereabouts on the night that the Cooper plane was hijacked. But the deeply image-conscious government agency would have reasons to invalidate McCoy as D.B. Cooper based on the investigation that they conducted of both crimes. Their investigation of the Cooper plane was sloppy, neglecting to collect and fingerprint the in-flight magazines that Cooper leafed through during the long process while waiting in Seattle. Key FBI individuals involved in the McCoy case soon retired and were replaced by an individual who had no interest in investigating whether McCoy was also D.B. Cooper. But in independent investigations of McCoy, it was determined that his Thanksgiving alibi was merely claims by his wife and sister-in-law that he had been home for the entire holiday. Besides the links to the tie and tie clasp, it was also determined that McCoy had traveled to the Las Vegas area by automobile around the time of the Cooper hijack and had spent a great deal of money in the immediate aftermath of the Cooper incident. Some members of the FBI team believe that it is possible that McCoy might have lost the money stolen during the Cooper hijack in midair and only was able to retain $8,000 he had stuffed in his pockets, which he then used to pay bills and buy airplane tickets for his family for an upcoming vacation. This would explain why McCoy might have been motivated to hijack another plane only six months after the Cooper heist, having been able to parachute safely in the first attempt, but tightening up other aspects of his crime during the second hijack to ensure that he could also secure the cash. Before being sent to federal prison, McCoy refused to confirm or deny that he was D.B. Cooper, and once he was sentenced to a long prison term, law enforcement had zero leverage to force McCoy to talk about his potential involvement. With McCoy's conviction, the FBI officially closed his case and publicly ignored any attempts to connect him with D.B. Cooper, although McCoy vehemently asserted to both his relatives and law enforcement that he could not possibly serve a 45-year term and officially requested a reduction in sentence. This was denied by the presiding judge of his case in July of 1974. McCoy's subsequent action in August of 1974 underlined both his desperation and a unique personality that combined bravado, meticulous planning, and a ruthless determination. Anticipating a legal rejection of his request for a sentence reduction, McCoy spent months assembling clothing and a fake gun comprised of plaster of Paris that he made in the dental shop where he was employed in the prison. Accompanied by three other hardened criminals, McCoy succeeded in hijacking a prison garbage truck and crashed it through two separate gates of Lewisburg Penitentiary, considered one of the most secure in the federal penal system. After stealing a succession of cars and license plates, the four fugitives succeeded in reaching coastal North Carolina, where McCoy grew up, had relatives, and most importantly, where his wife had relocated with their children. Out of cash, the four men, two of whom were serving long sentences for armed robbery, decided to rob a bank in tiny Pollocksville, North Carolina. The robbery netted $10,000 but unleashed a massive police response that resulted in the arrest of two of McCoy's associates. Accompanied by Melvin Walker, a career criminal serving a 55-year sentence, the two remaining fugitives successfully waded through swamp and back roads and made it to McCoy's aunt's house. She then went to McCoy's wife's house in Cove City, North Carolina, and directed Karen to a meeting point on a remote road in the backwoods. From there, McCoy and Walker were driven to Virginia Beach, Virginia, where they rented a motel room and laid low, living on the Pollocksville cash. Although the two fugitives briefly considered another airplane hijack, they ultimately resorted to another fundraising device that was less complicated, a bank robbery. Emerging from their Virginia Beach motel room exclusively at night, McCoy and Walker meticulously planned another heist that would be difficult to trace to them. They hit a bank in small-town Maryville, Tennessee, and got away with $76,000. The two men were flush enough to lease a home under an alias in an upscale Virginia Beach neighborhood, buy a 1971 sedan, and spend even more money on expensive furniture. McCoy and Walker perhaps felt rightly that they were living on borrowed time. McCoy surreptitiously kept in touch with his wife and even met with her and his young children on occasion. Understanding that constant movement was key to their continued liberty, the two fugitives eventually decided that they would relocate to a remote horse farm in Tuskegee, Alabama. On November 6, 1974, McCoy and Walker began this process by moving some of their possessions to Alabama from Virginia. Their plan was to return to Virginia Beach on Saturday, November 9th, and leave the area for good a few days later. Unbeknownst to McCoy, the FBI had received a tip about his and Walker's whereabouts. The source of this information is unknown, but it has been alleged that Richard McCoy's wife had begun an affair with an FBI agent from Charlotte, North Carolina, and after receiving a large amount of cash from McCoy, she decided to cut ties to her husband after being reassured that he would not be harmed during his apprehension. McCoy and Walker were both on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list and were considered extremely dangerous. Three agents broke into McCoy's Virginia Beach residence during the fugitive's absence. Several other agents watched the exterior of the home and waited for the two men to return. McCoy and Walker had an elaborate scheme to avoid any surprise arrest in Virginia Beach. When returning to their house, they would park their car several blocks from the residence, and one of the two men would jog armed and in a sweatsuit to the house. If the coast was clear, the garage door would be opened and an interior light turned on. The two men alternated on performing this task, and McCoy was up on Saturday night, just after 11 p.m., as the two men arrived in their neighborhood. Walker would say later that McCoy asked him several times to approach the house in the event that he, rather than Walker, might be recognized in a stakeout, but Walker refused. McCoy reluctantly began jogging towards the house, armed with a thirty-eight Smith & Wesson. He had always told Walker that he would shoot it out rather than be taken back to prison. When he unlocked his front door and was confronted by three shotgun-wielding FBI agents, that's exactly what he did, getting off at least one shot before a shotgun blast tore into his left chest. Ninety-one days after escaping from a federal penitentiary, Richard McCoy bled to death in the doorway of his Virginia Beach rental. Melvin Walker was apprehended at gunpoint by one of numerous FBI vehicles. He would be sent to the federal maximum security prison at Marion, Indiana, but would be paroled in 1981. In their 1991 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, former FBI agent Russell Calame and Bernie Rhodes, a federal probation officer, asserted that Richard McCoy was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. Both men were directly involved in Richard McCoy's apprehension and prosecution, Calame as the bureau chief of the Salt Lake City FBI office, and Rhodes as the probation officer who extensively interviewed McCoy as a condition of his sentencing process. Their book provides many facts that make a strong argument for McCoy being D.B. Cooper, including dismantling McCoy's Thanksgiving Day alibi and the hijacker's unexplained presence in Las Vegas in the days and weeks preceding and just after the Cooper hijack. Unfortunately, with the death of McCoy, any confession concerning the initial incident was rendered impossible, and officially the original hijack case remained open and unsolved. The Cooper case remained in the public eye, with several developments that occurred beginning in 1976. With the statute of limitations about to run out on the crime, a Portland grand jury indicted a John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy in November of 1976. In 1978, a hunter walking a logging road in dense wilderness near Castle Rock, Washington, found a plastic placard detailing how to lower the back stairway to a Boeing 727. But in 1980, the most sensational and puzzling physical evidence connected to the D.B. Cooper case was found in a sandbank on the Columbia River. On February 13, 1980, a nine-year-old boy named Brian Ingram, digging a hole in the sand along the Tina Bar, a search of riverbank on the Washington side of the Columbia, unearthed three bundles of $20 bills, $5,800 in all. The bills eroded, rounded along the edges, and buried for some time. The serial numbers matched the Cooper ransom money, and the Ingram family ultimately turned the currency over to the FBI. But they were found southwest and upstream of where the post-1971 hijack intensive search had occurred, and indicated that Cooper landed in a completely different location, either in or near the Columbia or Washougal rivers, and making it impossible for a landing in the Lewis River-Lake Merwin area. Initially, speculation that the hijacker may have purposely buried the money to throw off investigators was contradicted by geologists who maintained that the money and its condition indicated that it had submerged naturally after landing somewhere in the river. The possibility that Cooper and his money got separated in his descent was also greatly enhanced by this discovery. Aviation rules and design were also permanently influenced by Cooper's hijack. By 1973, all passengers boarding aircraft were subjected to a luggage search and metal detectors, a precaution that greatly reduced the number of hijackings of American airliners. All aircraft were also equipped with peepholes in the cockpit door, which allowed the crew to observe passengers without having to jeopardize their safety. The Boeing 727 itself was modified with a device called the Cooper vane, which prevented the rear stairway from being lowered during flight. As is always the case in such a high-profile crime, numerous individuals were either fingered by relatives or came forward on their own. The FBI typically eliminated most of these suspects immediately through their lack of real specific knowledge of the crime, age, physical characteristics, or the ultimate disqualifier, a lack of a match to the DNA extracted from the J.C. Penney tie. But even the FBI has acknowledged that the tie has been handled by so many individuals that genetic material extracted from it may not have any connection to the actual hijacker. Despite official FBI elimination, Richard McCoy was one of several alleged Coopers who achieved high-profile status within the community of amateur sleuths, journalists, and conspiracy theorists who obsessively chronicled developments in the case. Among some of the other individuals who received attention as possibly being the hijacker were Dwayne Weber, an ex-convict who was posthumously implicated by his wife. Joe Weber claimed that a few days before his death from kidney disease in 1995, Weber confessed to her that he was Dan Cooper. At the time, she had no idea what he was referring to, and her husband ultimately stated that he would just let the secret die with him. But after she researched the name, she became convinced that her husband was the hijacker and went to the FBI. Although Dwayne Weber had actually visited the Tina Bar area four months before money was found there and was found to have a wavy style of hair that one passenger recalled specifically, the FBI used the DNA sample they had to rule him out. Weber's wife remained unconvinced by the FBI's disqualification. Another notorious potential cooper emerged in a 2007 New York Magazine article, which identified a former deceased Northwest Orient purser named Kenneth Christensen as the hijacker. Christensen was implicated by his brother Lyle, who repeatedly told the FBI and various investigators of his suspicion. Along with the usual secretive deathbed confession while dying in 1994 of cancer, Christensen was an experienced paratrooper, a longtime crew member with knowledge of a 727 and based out of Seattle. Christensen bought a house with cash shortly after the hijacking. He died with an inexplicably large bank account, a valuable stamp collection, gold pieces, and a strange 20-year Northwest Orient scrapbook of news items that were related to the airline but ended right before the 1971 hijacking. He smoked, drank whiskey, and when Florence Schaffner was shown photos of Christensen, she agreed that he was photographically the closest match to Cooper that she had subsequently seen. Unfortunately, Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant with the most contact with Cooper, would eventually join a nunnery and refuse any interviews concerning the incident. Two books would be written alleging that Christensen was the hijacker, but his age in 1971, 45, and his small stature at five foot eight, 150 pounds, which contradicted most eyewitness accounts, made him a poor possibility. The FBI ignored Christensen from the start, and Ralph Himmelsbach personally ruled him out based on physical appearance alone. Strangely, though, the Bureau also said that Christensen was too skilled a paratrooper to have attempted the jump implying that anyone who knew what they were doing would never have planned such a hijack in such weather and in such a remote location. The FBI also refused to investigate any Northwest Orient employees because they also believe that their profile ruled out such a suspect, a supposition that may be fundamentally flawed. Unfortunately, the notoriety surrounding D.B. Cooper has also precipitated many journalistic attempts to cash in on the topic. This seems to be the case in the allegation that Robert Rackstraw, a former Vietnam veteran, helicopter pilot, ex-con, and possible CIA operative, is D.B. Cooper. Rackstraw is a former university instructor and arbitrator who seems to have gotten his life together after a checkered past in the military. In 2011, Thomas Colbert, a television journalist and law enforcement employee, began an extensively orchestrated investigation that concluded that Rackstraw is D.B. Cooper. Over a five-year period, Colbert's team of various former FBI agents, marshals, and prosecuting attorneys sifted through various leads that, that led them to individuals who were allegedly connected to the hijack. It is Colbert's allegation that three people colluded with Rackstraw and were waiting for him on the ground after Rackstraw jumped out of Flight 305. Colbert's team searched an area that an anonymous source told them was where Cooper actually landed and unearthed a parachute strap and pieces of a backpack that they turned over to the FBI. In 2016, Colbert's team also turned over information about Rackstraw and his accomplices that the Bureau never investigated, instead officially closing the case on July 8, 2016, claiming that no new information had emerged and that the Bureau did not have the resources to devote to a 40-year-plus cold case. The FBI had already investigated Rackstraw in 1979 and concluded that he was not Cooper. Colbert responded by maintaining that the FBI does not want to be embarrassed by a group of civilian investigators cracking the case and sued the FBI to release their files under the Freedom of Information Act. Among the subsequently released material were several letters mailed to newspapers from an individual who claimed to be the hijacker. One letter contained a numerical code that Colbert's team claims Rackstraw would have known and utilized during his military service. The numbers were a coded reference to Rackstraw's elite Vietnam Army Intelligence Unit, and as late as 2018, Colbert was trumpeting this as additional proof of Rackstraw's secret identity and conveniently using this information to fund his second History Channel documentary on the topic. Rackstraw's alleged motive for the hijack was his anger over his discharge from the Army after falsifying his education and military exploits. A 1970 photograph of Rackstraw also bears a strong resemblance to the Cooper drawing. Rackstraw's responses to Colbert's investigation have ranged from threats to sue to elliptical statements neither confirming or denying his identity as D.B. Cooper, Rackstraw has even hinted that he is in talks to produce his own version of his connection to the case, but currently refuses to publicly discuss any connection to the crime. Based on the FBI's attitude, the best Colbert will ever be able to do is to convince a television audience that Rackstraw is D.B. Cooper, and it is unlikely that this investigation will result in a prosecution. However, as long as somebody is willing to finance his investigation, Colbert seems amenable to pursuing the case. If nothing else, the Colbert investigation of Robert Rackstraw underlines the remarkable interest the Cooper case still generates five decades after it occurred. From its inception, the D.B. Cooper incident has fascinated and baffled Americans, prompted numerous private investigations, and resulted in specific speculation about various individuals. Much to the irritation of the FBI and individual agents like Ralph Himmelsbach, who characterized Cooper as just, quote, a sleazy, rotten criminal, unquote, Cooper has attained an American folk hero status that has only grown over time. The sheer audacity of an individual with $200,000 leaping from a passenger plane into stormy darkness and disappearing without a trace is impressive enough. That the identity of D.B. Cooper can never be definitively ascertained only adds to his status as one of the most mysterious and remarkable figures in the annals of criminal history. (laughs) Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about D.B. Cooper. Much of the information for this podcast came from Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper by Jeffrey Gray, and D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy by Bernie Rhodes and Russell Calumet. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, some very famous people and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.